Mr. Wade, how are you? Awesome, David. <laughs> it's just hard to believe that I'm sitting here looking at somebody that I was with 40 years ago that was an eight-year-old. Think about that. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Well, I, I, you know, one of the things that I, I think it would behoove me to start out with more than anything is just, uh, is just to try and somehow offer uh, a debt of gratitude not only for me individually for what you did for me and i'll share, share the story in a little bit here for sure but most importantly what you've done for 48 years for all the children whose lives you've affected whose lives you've changed whose lives you've saved i'm sure on many occasions um, and who you've given a stepping stone to fulfill the greatest potential possibilities of their life through your teaching. So thank you for that. Well, thanks for the comment, and uh, I appreciate it. But in reality, I've gotten more than I ever gave, really. Really. And that's one of the reasons I became a teacher and why I loved it so much. Well, you wh know? how did you, like, let's start from the beginning. I mean, because at eight years old, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, didn't have the right mind frame to say, hey, where are you from, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Hayden? Where, where are you from, and how did you get into teaching? Okay, I grew up in a small town up in uh, western New York called Canadagua. It's one of the Finger Lakes. Mm -hmm. I had um, four brothers and a sister, so it was a big family. I was the middle boy, and uh, I wasn't very athletic growing up, and my brothers were, but I was always good with the kids in the neighborhood. I, I think it was a gift that I got from God that, you know, I didn't know it was a gift yet, but I always played with other kids. I, I had a dog, I had a sister. Uh, who had five older brothers, and when she came into the world, I was the one that played with her and kept my eye on her, and that was my claim to fame with my mother. Really? Yeah, uh, my mother was thrilled that um, she knew that I was there watching watching Nancy, my little sister. And I, you know, I was at the perfect age. I was like eight or nine when she was born, so, you know, it was like something I needed, I think, you know. Well, it's one of those things that hits you that you're not even sure you need in life. And then when it does, it changes your whole perspective. And so now all of a sudden you have this little creature that you want to participate in. Take, right. Take. Jonna talks about the same. She's got an older brother who's a year and a half. Next younger brother is four years younger. Next younger brother is four years younger than that. So, you know, she was nine years old when her her youngest came in right and all you know all the, all the boys were like two years apart roughly and um you know like i said they were athletic and i wasn't at that time and you know i was small and i just didn't have a lot of confidence but i was always good with um you know other kids and i always tried to be the clown you know so i think part of that was hey part of wanting to be a teacher was i'd have a captive audience you know <laughs> and i could use my material on them but um <laughs> You know, so growing up, I, I was like a scorekeeper in high school and everything, and I was always a part of the teams, but I wasn't playing, and that really bothered me. But I would sit in the stands with my dad at games, and he would tell me what my brother should be doing and everything. So I and think how that— did your, how did your dad know? Was he an athlete? Where, yeah. How did he grow up? And um, my, my dad was uh, an incredible athlete. He um, played minor league baseball. Um, wow. he, had, he had a claim to fame that he roomed with Ralph Kiner for a year, wow. who was the big star for this— Pittsburgh mm -hmm. and um, you know he went into the war World War II and got hurt so that ended his career kind of as far as coming back out and playing baseball but he was very athletic and you know in our hometown he knew all the coaches and the coaches knew him from the golf course and that kind of thing so you know a small town you know you didn't have to be that good to be playing you know <laughs> but I definitely was you know but I consider myself one of the greatest scorekeepers in the history of Canandaigua Academy you know <laughs> 
you know, because I could tell the coach how many pitches the kid threw and right. where the where the other guys on the team had hit the ball. Because you know, like, like I said, growing up, I'd sit with my dad a lot of, at a lot of the games, and he would be, you know, commentating on what the boys should be doing and everything. So, well, I it's think, almost as if you know when you learn to keep score, especially in baseball, right? Or you learn to understand stats and time in. It, it's the back end reference system for performance. It's a way to evaluate what's actually happening, right? Are they, you know, the more minutes played, the less rebounds, the more, whatever it might be. Right. If there's a correlation to the statistic, the real time statistics and the ability of the player and being able to frame that in its totality from a tactical perspective, man, that's impressive. And I, like I said, I think that really, um, affected my personality as far as I wanted it. I wanted, I wanted so bad to be a player like my brothers, you know, and I wasn't then, uh, you know, like I told you earlier, I was small going into high school. I was like 4'11", weighed 98 pounds. You know, I graduated 17, but I got taller and I all of a sudden could run when I got to college. I was really fast. And all of a sudden, if you can run in so many games, you're, you know, you've got an advantage. I remember you playing kickball with us and you'd launch one and you'd be around those bases before we could even get to the ball. <laughs> well, I was good. You know, I was good. You know, when I was 30 playing against eight year olds, I was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. But remember, remember the reason, one of the main reasons you stand out, you did win a state championship in flag tag in Florida. And that's a big deal. Right. I mean, those right. leagues are intense. Right. Yeah. But the plan was bigger, you know, I really enjoyed playing with kids and I ran playgrounds in my hometown and that's huge. And it, it helped me as far as teaching because I realized that, you know, kids shouldn't be listening to you just because you're talking to them and they should be processing what you're saying just because you're the teacher. You got to give them some incentive. So a lot of times I would play a game and if you wanted to turn at the game, you had to give me back information that I was trying to teach you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was also a good checks and balance because I'd know if somebody was processing what I was trying to get them to process and whether they could answer right, or not. Right, right. All right, so you, where'd you go to school? Okay, so then... um, I, high school, I, like I said, I, you know, I was popular with the, the guys on the teams because I you know, followed them around like the little brother. And then I got uh, accepted to Oswego, which was a state college, mm-hmm. teaching college. And I went there, and I thought I was going to be a history teacher because I really loved history. And um, I had a guy I played at Penn State lacrosse with from Oswego State. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to take a foreign language because I tried French in high school and I was horrible. So <laughs> I said, geez, I can't be a history teacher. I got, so I went into elementary ed. Mm-hmm. And once I got in there, it was, you know, I knew I found what I really wanted to do. Um, was there know, any teachers in your family? Was there any, like, you no. had an aunt that just, nope. you, anything, nope. nothing? But I, 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 I'm glad you said that because I did have a, I went to Catholic school till fifth grade. And what happened when we were in Catholic school, you know, big family, you had to wear uniforms. And a couple of my brothers wore out their shirt, long sleeve shirts, and my mother made them into short sleeve shirts, you know. Mm-hmm. And the school didn't accept that, so they were kind of at odds with different things. Um, my mother wanted my older brother to repeat eighth grade. They didn't want him to do it. So it came down to the point where they said to me, do you want to stay in Catholic school or would you like to go to the public school? So I went to public school in fifth grade, and I got a man teacher. Oh, wow. So that's probably really where I started thinking about being a teacher. I got this Mr. Hunter. Mr. Hunter. Mr. Hunter, and he was incredible. So um, I had him for fifth grade, and then when I went to middle school, I had him for seventh and eighth grade for history classes. And then he was the JV baseball coach when I was in high school, and I was the team manager for him. 
So I really kind of worshipped him. And what's really cool is last summer, I looked him up and uh, got him to come to breakfast with me in Canandaigua. No yeah, I went home. Way. Well, I ran into him. Actually, I ran into him my 50th high school reunion. And I heard he was going to be there. And the first night, he wasn't there. But I saw a name tag that said he was going to be there, but he didn't, right. he didn't show up. And the next night, we were out at a picnic, and he was there. And I freaked out. I was like, oh, there's Mr. Hunter. So I went and talked to him, and he walked up with me. He met my wife, and we sat down and talked. And, you know, I basically told him, look, I became a teacher, and I've been doing it for 47 years because of you, you know. Well, so, well, it's so funny, you know, it's so funny that you're sharing that story right now because our story is almost identical, right? Yeah. I, I was just telling it before we got on. You know, I I had you you hands down were in the top three most pivotal influences in my life by far from a teaching perspective, and and you had you reshaped the way I thought about education. That that somebody that thought with whatever region of my brain that I saw and functioned with, you made that work and made sense to that learning, and that that stayed with me my entire life and has still continued into the way I try and teach now. And, and for the listeners, a few years ago, when I first started Frog Logic, uh, one of my good friends I went to high school with, Jan Lennon, he's been on the show before, uh, brought me in to do a, a fun activity with his fourth grade class. And afterwards, we went over to the, the administration. I said, is Mr. Wade still here? And they're like, yeah, he is. <laughs> and then I'm like, where is he right now? Where is this class? And they're like, he usually eats lunch underneath the tree over there. You can go with the kids, with yep. the kids. And I go walking out and you come up and you're looking at me and I go, Mr. Wade. And you're like, give me a hint. And I was like, uh, what did I say? I said, red Adidas shirt. And, you, and it was the champ shirt that I had right. bought you from champs because you had won the, the, the our first, yeah, yeah, our first the, championship the in flag football. Flag football. Yeah. And I remember being able to look at you in that moment and say, you know, Mr. Wade, you know, I, I graduated at St. Andrews. I went to prep school. I went to, I played lacrosse at Penn State. I joined the Navy. I've been a Navy SEAL. I worked for, you know, I, I didn't think I worked for the agency at the time, but I've done all these things and, and you still played that major role in ultimately me discovering that I wanted to be a teacher too. So, and, and that's, and that's why you, you know, that's, the thrill that you get as being a teacher. I mean, I'm getting tingles just talking to you and just going, wow, that's so neat. Cause you know, you're not deliberately trying to make kids do things, but no. you, you want to give them, you know, like I told people, I've never given anybody anything they didn't have. Yeah. It's bringing it out. It's getting them to realize that they've got this potential and this ability right within them. So yeah. Mr. Hunter implanted in that in you. And so you leave Oswego and did you think any idea I'm just going to teach here locally? I want to explore yeah, I thought, the world. I don't no, know. I, I thought I would teach, you know, in my home, like my area. So I got it. First, I couldn't get a job. Mm -hmm. This is a great story. So yeah. my, my grandfather says, I want you to drive my car to Florida because I couldn't get a job. Um, I had an interview down near New York City and uh, I got there early. Really smart of me. And there were a bunch of boys out playing basketball on the court. So I got over there and, you know, little did I, you know, it didn't take too long before I'm out there playing with them <laughs> and got a little sweaty and everything. Then I went into the interview and they were asking me, well, you know, I guess it was kind of a rough school because they were mostly asking me discipline questions. Right. And I hadn't taught, you know, I, I was coming out of college. Um, I had student taught on all first on all boys first grade. So that's a whole nother story. But anyway, you know, I'm 
you know, I just told him I wouldn't get to know the kids and I'm sure that I would be able to deal with anything that came up in my class. Well, obviously I didn't get the job. <laughs> so now I'm driving my grandfather's big Cadillac to Florida and my dad says, well, don't go too far, you know, because you, know, you haven't driven. I didn't get my driver's license until I was 21. <laughs> Okay. Why would you need to? Well, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't in the cars and everything, so and I didn't have a lot of money, so you know, college I bummed rides and stuff. So anyway, so I had my driver's license, but I hadn't had it very long. So now I'm in the car and I'm driving my grandfather's car to Florida, and I went too far, really, basically, and got like into North Carolina somewhere or something. And <laughs> I called home, and Dad says, "You got to get back here. You, you, you got an interview in Rochester." I said, "Okay," you know, and he goes, "You want me to meet you?" halfway I said well, well how's that gonna help I'm still gonna have to ride you know right, right. I said no I'll be fine so I jumped you know I got everything out of the hotel jumped in the car and took off left my wallet so now I'm driving oh, wow. it was Mon it was a Monday night because Monday night football was on I get pulled over get taken into this judge's house I'm standing <laughs> in the four year four year and I'm here in the uh you know the football game and basically they were wanting to know how much money I had and I I had some cash, and that was what they find me. Right. You know, and I said, well, I don't have my wallet. What am I going to do? And they go, we won't be pulling you over again. Yeah, right, right. So I got back into, you know, Canandaigua about 7 in the morning, took a quick shower, and went up to Rochester. And the thing that won me over was the guy said to me, the, the uh, man interviewing me said, tell me about yourself. You wow. Know, about your family, about, you know, I'm not going to ask you any questions. And I just started talking, you know, which was easy for me to do. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, being one of six, so... <laughs> You know, they hired me, but they had a little boy in the class that was a nightmare because mm -hmm. this was like... Um, How, what grade was it? It was third grade, but it was like the second month of school. Okay. And they had a kindergarten teacher that moved up to teach this class, and she couldn't handle this little boy. He, One little boy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. I got his name and, you know... Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. anyway, you know, it was... Yeah, he was a real challenge. He was, um, you know, a third grader and... Your first job right on the spot you get hit with the ultimate challenge in yeah. terms of, of and of. to tell you what a challenge he was he wouldn't do his work so i would stay after school and tell him you're not going home till you get going and i would sit and do stuff you know and do the planning and everything you had to do as a first year teacher and he would sit and i don't know what school got over let's just say school got over at two mm -hmm. by three o'clock he still hadn't done anything and i'm i'm not going anywhere you know i, I was single i you know right I was actually the first year living in my hometown, which was 35 minutes away, maybe. And, uh, you know, four o'clock came around and I would, you know, kind of prod him and finally he'd start going. And I would kind of, once he started going, I'd kind of help him. Right. But I wouldn't start helping him until he got going. Right. You know, and it, it'd be like four, four thirty, and he'd realize, wow, I'm not going home till. And um, the thing that hit me there was parenting. Yeah. Why aren't you, why aren't the parents more concerned? This kid's been an issue since kindergarten. Now that he's at school till four or five o'clock, why right. aren't they wanting to know more about what's, what's going, going on? What's going on and why not? But it was more like a relief for them because they were obviously having trouble handling him at home. Right. Did you ever get a chance, like, um, obviously this is back in a time where you could uh, approach subjects with, with, <laughs> with a, the repercussions weren't substantial right, right? You 1972 could, yeah, you, yeah. Could, you could actually talk to people and say what's going on right. what's happening in right. your home life is there anything i can do right did, did you have that opportunity with that young boy he he didn't he wouldn't open up yeah he wouldn't open up he he shut down you know yeah. and again it was my first year so i don't think i had the expertise to pull it out of him 
as well as I could have, you know, right. down the road. You know, if I had that little boy now, I know that I could have won him over a lot sooner. And maybe even um, my bigger goal would have been to fix his parents. Yeah. I don't know if I could have fixed them, but at least given them enough tools to go, look, you need to take care of this because this little guy. And I still wonder to this day. Um, last night when I was looking through the pictures and everything, I, I got a picture of his class. Right. And I saw him in there, and I, you know, he had a really nice smile in this picture. I'm thinking, I wonder whatever happened to him. To you him. Know? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I can't imagine after 48 years of teaching how many children, you know, we always want these situations, right? We always right. look forward right. for these. But there's many situations that weren't like that as right. well, too. So did that – did that uh, – disparage your 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 did you say oh wow maybe i'm not cut out for this but you know maybe i should try something else did you ever try having a side job with it or anything else no i you know the uh the, i got through that first year um i learned you know i learned that first year not to put all my eggs in one basket because what happened was the principal came to me beginning before the second year started and i was working with two ladies uh two older ladies grandmotherly like like I am now, right? And um, you know they were uh, polar opposites, okay. like Antarctica and Antarctica. And <laughs> I was the deciding vote on everything, right. you know. Mrs. You Montgomery, Mrs. Mediator. Montgomery believed this, and Mrs. Uh, Tuttle believed this, <laughs> and I was the one that got to decide what we did. So it was crazy. And you know, yeah, right out of college, you know, you're thinking, whoa, this is wild. It's like having your grandkid tell you what you can do. You know, so anyway, he called me into the office and he told me, look, you're going to not have a classroom this year. You're going to be the reading specialist and the two ladies are going to teach in the classroom. And I'm like, well, I don't want to do that. So I went home and I called this um, head administrator from the school district that I had interviewed with earlier. And I just told him, look, I'm not going to I'm going to look around for another job because I'm not going to I don't like I that. Teach. I, yeah, yeah, I want my own classroom, you know. So the very next day, I'm in the school building, and I heard, Mr. Wade, come to the office. <laughs> <laughs> I go into Mr. Byers' office. He goes, hey, listen, you got a classroom, and Mrs. Tuttle has a classroom, and Mrs. Montgomery, who was really the problem, is going to be, you know, the reading the teacher. Reading teacher. Yeah. So I, it taught me right off the bat that you can't, you know, you've got to stick up for yourself and also not put all your eggs in one basket. Right. And I worked there two years, and then I ended up moving to Florida. How'd that happen? I knew a girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody gets the Florida yeah. for a girl, right? Fortunately, fortunately, it wasn't the girl I ended up with. Yeah. Uh, so Never anyway, is. <laughs> yeah. So I came to Florida, and it was a great situation because it was an open classroom. Okay, the school was an open classroom in Okeechobee, and I worked with three other people. Okeechobee. Okeechobee. Deep Okeechobee South. Okeechobee in, in Florida. 74? 70, uh, 75 to 80. I taught five years over there. 74 in Okeechobee must have been a little rough. 70, it was. And they were, you know, spanking kids and that kind of stuff. But, um, wow. you know, it was a deep south. Yeah. And it was, like I said, it was an open classroom. So there were 120 kids and no walls. So we all had to work together. And fortunately, I worked with a great group of people. They really were good. And, it, you know, we, we, like, did a puppet show. We had a stage in the classroom. And we worked on a puppet show and did a puppet show for the kids. And How, that, how did that go? I mean, how did, how did they decide that a way to, to cross over those different developmental stages was through entertainment or puppetry or whatever? Well, it wasn't so much that. It was just the, the idea was that if they had an open concept... That was kind of one of the things in the 70s, you know. Right. And it really was a good idea if you worked together. Because what happened was the four years we worked together, it was great. Then the fifth year, 
they made me team leader and you know we got a couple of new people in on the team and you know one of them was really basically a slacker and it doesn't it doesn't work yeah so i learned there in my career that if you got somebody that thinks like you and works like you you can do that and it's it's to your benefit because you can you know if you're having a bad day with a child you can have them take the child or you know, pass the, off and right, so the child right. can get a different a different right. form of imprinting right? right and plus you had more obviously you had more variety because the, the other teachers got different personalities and everything so you're working as a team the kids see that wow these people are getting along this is an older guy and a younger guy this is a woman and a guy mm-hmm. so it was it was i learned a ton you know and i think it really helped develop me and then that last year i realized ooh, this is not a good situation now let me, can I ask you a quick question just sure. about the, the the functionality of that? Would You still broke them into age groups, though, right? Well, it was one age. We had third grade. Okay. Oh, so okay. we all had third, We had 120 third graders. Wow. We were all third grade teachers, but oh, like I one of it. us would do math, Got one it. of us would do science, and we'd rotate the kids around. And then we did some things, large group, you know, together, mm-hmm. like the puppet show, obviously, we, and, and things like that. And, um, you know, like I said, I got to meet – you know, one of the girls was from Iowa. One of the girls was from Wisconsin. The guy I worked with was from Arkansas. So it kind of gave you, a, you know, I was a New Yorker. You yeah, know? the even taste though, of all even those Even though I was a Western together. New Yorker, yeah. I was still considered, you know, a New Yorker, right, which, right. you know, people have an, an impression of what New Yorkers are. And even though there's as much diversity there as any Anywhere other place, in the world. Right? So um, then I, and I would go home to my hometown, which was great. Uh, playground. That's the best jobs I've ever had because at the playground, if the kids didn't think like I did, I'd say go play badminton. We're doing wiffle ball here. Right. You know, school, you can't go, I'm doing math here. Go over there if you don't want to do the math. Right. You know, I had to win the kids over in, in teaching. So the playground situation was nice. It was similar because I was working with kids, but I didn't have to, you know, um, make sure that they wanted to do what I wanted to do. Right. You know. Right. So that fifth year, you get the new person comes in. You realize this is it's a very unique situation if you can get that that team unity going. Right. So you decide from Okeechobee. Well, I get I go home and get married. <laughs> right. Oh, in that time, you yeah. met you met your I'm, wife back up. I in met New York. I, I met my wife in '78. Okay. 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 And she was still in college. I was running the playgrounds. Right. Another great story. Yeah. <laughs> so she's playing tennis with her mother on the tennis courts. I'm teaching the kids how to play base uh, softball, Kiwanis baseball, mm-hmm. and the little ones got hunting tags on the back of their their pants because they couldn't keep the, you couldn't keep track of the batting order. And I'd have high school kids helping me, and I'd t- pitch and teach them how to catch, teach them how to right. run the bases, how to swing the bat. And I was pitching so good because every time the kid would hit the ball, I'd get to turn and see Joanne up on the tennis court playing with her mother, which right. is probably like 60 yards away, right? <laughs> so I was also supposed to be umpiring. So <laughs> the kids would hit the ball, and you know I'd be looking at Joanne, and then one of the high school kids would go, well, what was he, safe or out? I says, well, what call- do you mean? Yeah, call it. <laughs> call it. Help me out here. Yeah. And we got all done playing, and, you know, I, I started to walk home, and there was a water fountain by the tennis court, and her mom stopped with her, and I stopped to get a drink, and her mom started asking me who I was because they lived in the neighborhood. And um, there was a guy that was a legend in our hometown that ran those playgrounds. He was a high school teacher and athletic director, mm-hmm. a guy called Frank Baker, and he was, you know, he was tremendous. And he was another influence on me because when we were kids, we would go to the playground, right? you know, that he worked at. And, um, you know, you didn't sign up for anything. You just rode your bike up there and you played until lunchtime. You rode your bike home at eight lunch and then you went back in the afternoon. Wow. Those you know? people that were just, they understand 
you know, the importance of athletics and how it can be a unifier for all children, regardless of their backgrounds, their socioeconomic positions. There's something that lifts everybody up when you're involved in sport, right? And those people did that. And like we were chatting before, you know, that was Jonna's grandfather. You know, he ran all the, the rec fields. He put all the teams together. And, you know, out of his out of his seven kids, five sons, they all coached and they all right. contributed and they all. And it's just something about that, that sensation of community when people do that, that is influential. You and and, and I think the other thing that's really important with it, like these guys that are all time winners, he did things like checker tournaments and. You know, um, you know, badminton and different games, croquet and different games that kids didn't know about, but that other kids could excel in. It wasn't always just the big boys, right. you know, that you grew up in your little small town. The, you know, the kids that could throw the ball harder and hit it farther, they weren't as good in some of these things. Right. And Mr. Baker knew that, and he put those things out, and you would win a ribbon. So it was like a big deal. So anyway, um, you know, you mattered. How, how I did gave you? I gave the mom I gave the mom essay answers. <laughs> Yes, Joanne ma'am. never said a word, and I'm yes, like, oh, ma'am. my God, what just happened? I'm walking home going, what just happened? That girl's gorgeous. And actually, I'd seen her, and I tell this story. I'd actually seen her like uh, six years earlier at a high school basketball game. Okay. I sat down. I was going to see one of my neighbors uh, play, and there was a star of the basketball team, and she was in the stands, and I looked across. And I said, wow, who's that? And they go, well, that's Wayne's girlfriend, you know? And I'm thinking, man, she's gorgeous. And, you know, she was like a senior in high school, but – I, you know, yeah. I, and then, you know, five years later or whatever, I run into her at this playground. Right. And, and so she anyway. was in college at the time. Right. She was at Niagara studying to be a nurse. Nurse. And, and, and so, so when you finally talked to her, was it love at first sight? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. It, it always, for me, it was. Yeah. You know, I, but, I, you know, I'm thick. So <laughs> we're out, we're out one, you know, the first night, I, I, I think I'm having a great conversation with her and I'm ready to, you know, can I give you a ride home? And she goes, no. And I go, I look at her like, no. And she goes, yeah, you see those girls over there? That's who I came with. I go home with who I came with. I said, okay, you know. Oh, yeah. And then I think maybe I wasn't having such a yeah, good conversation. Maybe I and wasn't. the next <laughs> night we're talking and we're outside talking and she says, would you like to come over? and have some chocolate chip cookies that I made. And I said, sure. I'm thinking she's talking about, it's dark out, right? Right. So I'm thinking she's talking about when there's sun, you know, and it's safe for her to bring me into her house. Right, right. So I keep talking, and she brings it up again, and I keep talking. It's like 11 o'clock, 11.30. She says it four or five, six times. And finally, it's like 1 o'clock in the morning, we're still talking. She goes, well, are you going to come over or not? Yeah. And I go, you're talking about tonight? Like I said, I'm pretty thick. She goes, yes, what do you think I'm talking about? I said, I, I thought you were talking like during the day, you know, like. When it... So we went over to her house and, um, you know, she unlocks the back door. We kind of go in quietly and she turns on the kitchen light. She gets out these cookies and milk and I'm smitten now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, I didn't kiss her or anything. We went home and uh, she knew that I had a softball tournament in Rochester. I was playing on a travel team, so. The morning I was up and I was upstairs. My dad said, hey, you got a phone call. And I went down. It was her calling to make sure I was up. I thought, this is great. So yeah, that you know, was it. Well, yeah. And I'm clever. So I had the whole day. We played like three games. We were winning softball. So I'm, I'm all ready to call her up. And I'm like excited. Yeah. And I get home. I had all day to think about opening lines and stuff. Right. I call and she answers. And I go, you're there? <laughs> she goes, who's this? You know, you're there because I was shocked that she yeah, answered the phone. Yeah, yeah, you were well, I sure. I said, this is Jim. Would you like to go and have a drink? She goes, yeah, sure, you know. And it was like, yeah, and then we were just together every night after that, you know. And ever since. Yeah, and she's, I've won the fairy tale. I've got the fairy tale. 
you know, she's uh, she was a beautiful person. She still is, and she's prettier on the inside than she is on the outside. She's That's just, my favorite. And, she, thing. and and she's she's made me so much of a better human being. Yeah, no no doubt. She lifts you up every day yep. and makes you be yep. the best man you can be. And she does that with everybody around her too. And yeah. and she's and, a legend. And and, and yeah, and, and and wants no credit, you know. Yeah, just like you. Just well, like I, you. I, you know, I'd like the credit. <laughs> All right, so you guys get together. Obviously, you're like, hey, let's move to Florida. Right, right. And so she, you, she moves to Florida. And you guys came directly to Boynton or Boca, or how'd you find this area? Well, she first came to, we, when I was teaching Okeechobee. So mm-hmm. she came to um, Fort Pierce. We were living in Fort Pierce, and I was driving with Home a group of people. Home of the UDTC people. Museum, by the way. Yeah. Everybody go see the UDTC Museum. It's one of the greatest small, big, little, big museums in the country. Uh, they right need everybody. They, okay. they they need everybody's help and contribution. They had a little run in with some bad press rate recently, but that was no way, shape, or form had anything to do with anybody at the uh, the the um, the museum. The director is incredible. He's a legend in the SEAL team. So is Hector Delgado. Everybody there is incredible. It'll be a wonderful experience for you. Um, just give it a chance. It's a beautiful place with a lot of heritage and history from out. So I had to give a little plug. They, no they problem. Yeah. So I didn't do a good, basically we lived in Fort Pierce, uh, for a year and a half, I think, or two years. And then we went home in 80 and got married. And then we moved to Florida. Joanne had a job in Boca at the mm-hmm. hospital and uh, I had a teaching job at Addison Meisner. And, and, and that was it. Yeah. Holy cow. 1980. Wow, mm-hmm. man. It, it's still, it's still. You know, you, you think about all the life that you can live in, in, in 50 years, right? And yeah. 40 years for me since I was eight years old. And But you really go back and you, and you begin to imagine, all right, what would my life have been like with, without you in it? Right. Had I, in third grade, that really significant change from that second to third grade year, that massive year for child development, what if I had had another teacher that I didn't get along with? What if I had had another teacher that didn't understand how to reach me? Where would I have gone, right? Right. And, and, and so for that, you know, one of the questions, you know, I, I think everybody wants to know um, and what you've seen over 48 years, what are, what are some of the best ways to teach a child, to teach a child to read, math, science, and just how to bring the best out. Like you said, how to pull the best out of a child. The, the number one thing I think is modeling, you know. Interesting. And like with reading, you got to sit and read with your kid. And what happens with a lot of people is once their kid can read, they think that's the end of the journey. Let them go read. And that's really the beginning. That's when you really have a chance to introduce them to other things that you're interested in, but finding out what they're interested in and sharing that with them. Because like I told somebody, you know, when, you know, back when I was teaching, they were going, you got to read the book and write a book report. I'm going, well, why? Who? I didn't do that. I read books and I talked to somebody about them and I shared them with other people that had commonality with me. And it's like, I don't see why we're doing things in school that they don't do anywhere else in life. Really? To me, to me I think school should be about life, what, what you're going to do in life. You're preparing kids for life. And, you know, reading is reading and writing are the, you know, if you if you can read and you can write, your life's going to be so much more enhanced. So you like I tell parents, I, I know I can teach your kid to read, but that's not my job. My job is to get them to realize it's a gift. So 
I spent a lot of time reading with the kids and finding, you know, and that's the other thing, the children literature is so good. It's so much better than it was, you know, 50 years ago mm -hmm. or even when I first started out. And, you know, finding those things that kids like, there's so much variety out there that once you get to know a child, you can figure out what they like and get them, you know, to read that stuff. But you got to be there with them doing it, I think. How do you want, I mean, is it, is it as, is it as um, structured as just uh, understanding grammatics and, and understanding sentence composition, or is it really just the, the passion of a story? Uh, yeah, I, 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 for me, it's the, it's the story. Mm -hmm. It's the storytelling or the illustrations and, you know, bringing them to life and, you know, seeing the version that the person put down the author and making the kids see that and feel that and tying it into what they're doing. Um, you know, I think that's the power behind it. I wasn't too worried about, you know, the sentence structure and things like that. Well, for an example, there's a lady that, uh, an author out of um, Canada, Paulette Bourgeois, and she wrote the Franklin books, which anybody that's familiar with second grade kids, have, it's a TV show, but the books are great because you can actually use context clues to leave out words and have mm -hmm. the kids figure it out. So a lot of the stuff I did once I got kids where I could find out where they were at as far as their reading ability, doing things like teaching them the strategies that you need to be a good reader, mm -hmm. what smart readers do. What are some of those? Um, one of them is, you know, research has proved that sounding out is not the uh, be it all. They say when you come to a word you don't know, you should skip it because you've already tried to sound it out. That's how you know you don't know it, mm -hmm. okay? And read to the end of the sentence then come back and try and use context clues. Okay. Okay. Because now what happens, let's say you're reading a story and it says, uh, the baby was stuck in the bop and he couldn't get out. And you know it's a B word. Well, if you skip that and come back and you know it's a B word, you can eliminate a bunch of words like baseball and mm -hmm. all these words where if you're trying to just sound it out, all those choices can, can come into play. Right. So you give it, figure it out, oh, it's buggy, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big things that I, I would do with kids is go, yeah, you know, you need to be able to sound out, obviously, but research shows that when you come to a word, if you're reading along and you come to words you don't know, you've already tried to sound it out in your mind. So use context too. So the phonics ideas and all that. It's one of the three. It's one of three. It's, it's, it's important. Right. It's really important, but I think it got overemphasized. Right. And that's, that's typically what can happen, right? When, when certain waves of, 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 um, uh, teaching initiatives kind of sweep in. Uh, you look at the early seventies when Montessori kind of flushed into our system. Right. right? And then you look at uh, uh, the late eighties when we had another wave of, of European concepts come in and you look at the way education evolves and it becomes whatever's new in the moment. And, and we lose sight of what some fundamental basics are that have always been true. Right. And um, you know, I, I was, you know, around 90, I was like uh, fumbling with whether I really wanted to keep being a teacher because I had kids reading out of Basils, mm -hmm. which was a group of stories, and I had kids doing workbook pages, and I would sit with them. If they made a mistake in their workbook page, I would sit with them and go over it, and I was doing this, and it was arduous, and it was like I wasn't getting any bang for the buck, really. And I, I, I went and investigated and read a bunch of stuff, and I read about whole language, and I believed it because basically what it's saying was, Kids don't come to you empty and you're, you're filling them up. They've got things already going on. And what you're really doing is making connections with the knowledge and information they already have. And where did you read that? 
Um, I just, a ton of stuff. I, it was called whole language back in the whole time language. and it was from New Zealand and Australia. Okay. And, uh, you know, their philosophy was, you know, that, that just what I was saying that, you know, kids don't come to you empty and you just fill them up. Right. And, you know, it was talking about a lot more about the context, you know, and the information. And like I told kids, reading is all meaning making. It's making sense. Mm-hmm. If it's not making sense, then you have to change your strategy because they didn't write anything that was gobbledygook. And what I would do right. is like have a morning message up and I'd have post-its over certain words. And I'd tell the kids, see if you can guess what those words are. And I tell them, you're never going to have to guess when you're reading because you're going to see those letters. But I got them covered up because I'm trying to teach you context clues. Mm-hmm. And then I'd uncover either the front of the word or the end of the word. Right. And because kids would give me a guess and they'd say truck and I'd uncover then there'd be uh you know, a B. Right. So it can't right. be truck. What could it be with a B? Oh, bicycle, you know, and that kind of thing. So I, and then I'd show them that, okay, now you can use sounding out, mm-hmm. but you got to have context. Right. Because it's meaning making that you're really, reading is all about meaning making. Well, I mean, all education is putting it in the right context for usage. And I think, you know, that was one of the big challenges for me. I, ne- I never saw how like mathematics, how, how does mathematics apply to me? me meanwhile, I'm, I'm an art, you know, I was always into art. I just love drawing. I've always right. loved drawing. And so I, I look at things from a different perspective. And so I fought it tooth and nail from day one. So, you know, how do you teach context in mathematics? How do you teach context in science? Okay, so uh, let me put this thought out there. One thing that I was thinking while we were talking was I always went whole to part. I didn't real. I wasn't really good with part to whole in a lot of things. It's like I got to understand what the big picture is. And like for an example, with uh, there's a lot of kids who were really weak. I'd put the words up to songs, like um, what's the one? Put your right foot in. Oops. Oh, yeah, put, yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah. Put your right. Uh, do the hokey pokey. Do, do yeah, the hokey yeah, pokey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, you know, songs that the kids knew, I'd have the words up. Right. And we'd sing, and you know, and then they would follow along and go because those are all the sight words. Those are all the words. You know, the same words that are in those songs are in the newspaper and in magazines. Right. And that kind of thing. So that was a big thing for me. Hold apart first. You know, doing the whole, give them a, a concept that they can hang on to and then breaking it apart. Okay. Okay. Math, it was all patterns. And I would tell kids if they were good in math that reading was easier. Okay. Wow. And if kids were good in reading, I'd tell them math is even easier. And a lot of times when I was, you know, obviously back in the 70s, you know, girls supposedly weren't good in math, and I was I couldn't figure that out because it's all patterns. Right. And if you look at the fashion world, which is all patterns, it's females and, you know. Well, just there, you, There's a lot of uh, males that are in it, but they have a feminine part to them, which, right. you know. Well, you know, it's also, you know, I think there's an emotional patterning with relationships that girls tap into from an emotional intelligence perspective because they're, they're playing with dolls, right, essentially. Right. And there's a... There's a there's a pattern, right? I'll I'll give and then I'll receive and I'll give and I'll yeah, receive. Yeah, maybe more right, emotional right. where I mean, math is not that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I, there's a there's a structure to healthy communication, right? There's a structure okay. towards uh, a child taking care of something and that emotional thing, and it's just being able to understand that there's also structures and figuring out math equation. There's structures, patterns, and everything, and the cadence of reading. And how a writer writes, the voice of a right. writer, right? Right. Well, I, I, I agree. And I think, too, the other thing is math is all skills. It's isolated, really, skills that you build up into where reading is more encompassing. Okay. The same with the writing. 
you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it was easier for as far as math is to pick out a skill and like for the, the adding and subtracting combinations. I always taught them together. And I would get kids coming into second grade that didn't know how to subtract as well as they did to add. And it's like, well, wait a second, it's the same thing. It's just a reverse. If you know five and six is 11, then you know 11 take away six is 11 take away five is right. six. And they they're didn't get, connected. they didn't know that concept. Wow. You know, they didn't, that wasn't the way they were being taught. And I came up with, you know, early in my career one year, the hundreds pattern where I would start out with the kids and I would give everybody uh, two pieces of paper and no blocks. Mm-hmm. And I'd put up zero and I'd say, okay, you got all the concepts for zero. And the kids would be like, well, what are you talking about? I said, right in front of you. And I'd have a um, magnetic plus sign between. I said, well, you got it right here. Zero plus zero. That's the only thing to make zero. Now one, how many think one's got? And they'd be like, I don't know. I said, well, here, give me one block and I'll, you can make them all. They're like looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> right. You know, this is the first day of this lesson. Right. And then I go, okay, well, you got one plus zero. Now move the block or switch the papers. You got zero plus one. One's got two. That's it. How right. many think two's got? And I'd have somebody once in a while say, well, two's going to have three. I go, you got it. Here's two blocks. Make them. Two and zero, zero and two, and one and one. Wow. And I'd write those on the board. It's how many three going to have? And they'd say four, you know. Or that now I'd start getting kids to say four. Give them to me. I give them another block. So they needed the manipulatives, which is huge at that age. Well, let me you ask know? you this. I mean, it, uh, let me just finish this. Yeah, thought, sorry, sorry. No, that's good. Yeah. Because I'd go all the way to 18. And 18's got how many? Two. No, no, 18. Oh, from in terms of blocks? What I was saying. How many combinations? Three, right? Three's the, the got four. Is... Four's got five. So 18's going to have? Six. No. I, I skipped on you. Okay, I'm going to go back. Zero's got one, right. one's got two, two's got three, three's got four, five's got six, ten's got 11. Right. So 18's going to have? 19. Right. Right. And I'd write all 19 down. 18 and zero, zero and 18, 17 and Check one. Check the combination. I'd write them yeah. all down, and then I'd erase every one of them. Right. But nine plus nine. Because the other ones, you were going to use two-digit addition and stuff. Right. So now you've got this, when you put it up on the board, you've got this inverted Triangle. Triangle. And it's all 100. And right. people go, how'd you figure that out? I said, that's how they made flashcards. Wow. There's 100 flashcards. Yep. And there's a pattern. So I would teach the kids the pattern, and then I'd play a game with that pattern. I, I, the first day, I'd just do zero through six. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the kids would have the blocks in front of them. They'd have seven blocks. Okay. Right. Six or six blocks. Mm-hmm. And they could make any one. I said, I'm going to erase. I'm going to play mind eraser, game of made up. I'm going to erase some of the facts. You got to make it in front of you. And then I'm going to turn around. If you made one that stays on the board, you're in the game. If you make one that I erased, you're out. you got to go stand. But if you're standing nice, I'm going to let you back in the game. Right. So keep paying attention. Right. You know. And I'd erase all the ones with zero in them because the kids knew that if they read it backwards, they were out. So if you said three plus two, but on your paper you had two here and three there, you were out. You right. Know? But let me ask you so this. So the pattern was the key. So one, it sounds like there wasn't you weren't pulling from a a pre-existing plan that you kind of found the way to do it that worked best for your particular teaching style. right i I knew what skills the kids were required to get and and who who was giving those in the beginning um the school district yeah the school district okay and over the years they were doing things that i didn't agree with Uh, i mean way back uh when i first came to florida they were doing like mastery testing to move up a level in reading. 
and you had to pass this mastery test to move to the next level. Well, if you didn't pass it the first time, they gave it to you again. Same test. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then if you didn't pass it then, you got it again. And then same test. Same test. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was like, how is that? You know, so there were things like that that I, you know, nodded to, but I, I figured my job was to teach kids to think. Yeah. And if I could get them to think and get them to like reading, they were going to read a lot more. There's not enough time in the day for kids to read as much as they should. So if you don't get them to like it and them reading on their own, you're really not going to make the gains that you want to make. They have to, they have to feel passionate about enough to do it when you're not looking. Yep. Right. All right. Have you ever heard of a guy named uh, Sir Ken Robinson? Uh, he uh, has that big famous TED talk about traditional educational system and how, like you, you know, testing and all this, and we we regimented our our children out of their ability to be creative educationally, and and through the you know the the, the systematic structure of the way I, I haven't, but I believe it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, I'll I'll send you the link. This yeah. guy's brilliant. It's one of the most watched TED talks of of all TED talks of all time, and. He was knighted by the queen because of his work in education. And he's the same way. He talks about saying, hey, you know, it's not, it's not a teacher's job to force the outcome of, of some type of, of governing body, right? right? It's a teacher's job to bring out the best possible, um, um, the, best possi the best possibility of a child's own interpretation of their future. Right. Right. Their ability to see, hey, I really like reading. Maybe I can do something in reading. Hey, I really love science. Yeah, you, you've hit on to something that I believe about the school system. And that's that we need to quit doing the testing that we're doing and need to open it up to where we're getting the kids to figure out what their passion is. How do you do that? So, you know, um, you know, you, well, Johnny, whose parents are both uh, one's in a doctor, one's an attorney. Uh, they the education is drilled down their throats every single day. They talk about going to Harvard and Princeton in fourth grade, right? right. Their whole and then you've got you've got Bobby and Jane over here that have their mom's a single parent. She's working five jobs. Uh, they're poor, and and they never talk about. It's just hey, don't get in trouble. Right. I, I don't know. I'm my my guess is, is like that's the situation I had when I was working. And I was, getting the, I was getting to know the kids well enough to know what they liked. And, you know, we can't get rid of the art and the music. Oh, that drives and, and me the nuts. And, and, and those kinds of things in the school. Yeah. You know, and that, I think, is all at the expense of the testing that they want to do, you know. And they're when basically you, practicing for tests. When did you first notice this dramatic shift to where, you know, how schooling was changing? where it was moving into this next uh, metamorphosis of, of where, you know, these tests became the preliminary uh, construct of, of how you manage or judge school districts. I think recently, I think in the last like 10 years. Wow, okay. You know, like I said, when I was, you know, in the 90s is when I discovered whole language and just that whole concept of, you know, kids being they weren't jars that you were filling and everything and you know there was there was a testing element there's always been a testing element because it's assessment I don't think there's anything wrong with assessing the kids but when you start assessing them and then tying like the testing that they're doing and tying all these things into it and it really doesn't do what they're saying they're doing and now you've got kids 
basically you got teachers practicing for the test because the principal's pay is tied into it the teachers pay is tied into it it's like well you know if i get a hundred kids that score over this i get a bonus is, right is that the way right. it works right it's pretty much like that it's pretty much like that so okay. you know and and is that is that directly attributable to uh funding then from your county or wherever if you have the best test scores will they reallocate better funding to you i'm not sure but i know that i know the principal's the principal's pay is tied into test score so they're you know they're putting the heat on the teachers to make sure they have good test scores and you know uh, i know for a situation like the last couple of years they would the kids would get a test at the beginning of the year to see how they're going to do Mm-hmm. you know project uh, their scores then they would take it again in december same test same test same idea to see what their scores are like so that you could work with the kids that were lower and the kids that were higher it's okay and then they'd get the same test at the end of the year or not even at the end of the year toward the end of the year and you know it was like well what's the point well let me ask you this is is there always first off you know is has the differences between capability with children, has that narrowed or has that widened or has it always just kind of been what it is? I'm not sure, I know this. When, the, when kids would come into my classroom, children would come into my classroom, I would tell administrators and parents and I said, listen, I'm not gonna close the gap because there's a gap when they come in the room, okay? Automatically. Automatically. You know, the gap's probably going to get greater because there's no ceiling in my room. When I'm teaching these kids, there's no ceiling. So the kids that are sharper are going to grow more. You know, I hopefully the kids that are lower, I can bring up to an, you know, to a standard that's acceptable. Mm-hmm. But the kids that are really sharp, they're going to grow. If you allow them to grow and you have that kind of situation in your room, they're going to grow a ton. You know, they're going to grow more than a year. And you know, they're trying to get everybody to average, you know, a year's growth. Well, I don't know how you, you know. Yeah, I don't. That's, and you're seems, basing that on these tests or something. Yeah. It's like, come on. Like, this is, you've created a false metric for for um, success, first right. and foremost, by testing. Standard. Right. We all know we have to have it, right? Just like in any sport, right? Can you throw the ball real fast? Can you hit the ball? Can you hit the pitch? Can right. you throw? Can you catch? Can you block? Whatever it is, there's a, 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 a medium of performance that needs to be met in order to continue your growth trajectory, right? right? But in schools, it seems like it's so, it's so varied from whether you're going to, you know, St. Andrews or you're at Addison Meisner or you're at St. Joan or wherever your kids are going, man, the, it's so varied. How, How does that, you know, how does that happen and, and why is it so distinct? And maybe we should be looking at the outcome. Maybe we should be looking at these kids after they get out of high school. Really? Before that far the, ahead. Well, before they go to college, maybe there needs to be some looking at how well did these kids do under this situation, you know? Well, when you look at Palm Beach County, right? When, when I remember when I first got home out of the military, came home in 03, uh, you know, and started Frog Logic, I, I wanted to get into all the middle school systems. And so I had like 22 meetings with Palm Beach County School District trying to bring Frog Logic in and did all my research. And at that time it was like, I don't know, I, I forget what the graduation rate, it was it was in the low right, 70s right. or something like that. And, yeah. and then it came up and now it's starting to go down again. And it's like, you know. And how, how do you not, how, when it comes down, how do you not look at what you're doing 
at the elementary level and go, maybe this testing is where we've, we've messed up because you, you can talk to anybody that's in the school system now and they're, they're saying we're practicing the test. Everybody. Everybody's saying that. I, I would be, from from I, kindergarten to twelfth grade. I, I know I know the elementary schools. I know the elementary schools. Okay. You know, you know. I taught second grade, so I didn't have a lot of that. Third grade, they get hit with the test. So you is know, is that why you went down to second grade? Is because no, you didn't I wanted to get away. No, from actually, that I was nope. There was no. Te- I wasn't. Ha- there was testing in third grade, but a lot of it was national tests and okay. things like that. And I didn't have a problem with that because right. I knew I made my kids thinkers. Mm-hmm. You know. Or, or tried to. That was my goal. Right. And like I've told people before, look, you, I want you to give my kids any test that any other second graders are taking in the country. As long as my kids know the format, give me a day to show them the format, I'm willing to put my kids up against any Anybody. other kids. Yeah. I don't care. Private school, public school, whatever you want to do. You show me a test you're taking and I'll let my kids take it. Because I knew I had kids that loved reading and kids that were good in math because, you know, I could see what they were doing. Right. You know? And you won um, some awards as teacher in Florida, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, what were they? Well, I, I got, um, I make a difference, one of those, you know, with the TV station and things like that. Um, you know, I didn't win a lot, be, you know, who cares? It was, you know, again, I was a man in a woman's world, too. Right. Uh, you know, and that. Um, but not always. When you first started, it was more equal, wasn't it? No, never, it was never equal. Not elementary not, not, school. No, no, but it was, it was closer than it was today. Not in the elementary school. Oh, you know, wow, I okay. think high school, middle school, it's closer. But elementary school, you got a couple guys that are teaching roughly, you know, mm-hmm. I would say. it's. Um, now, why didn't you want to uh, matriculate into uh, high school and, and be a coach on a team? or, or, or I just, I like the, the kids. I like the little ones. And I loved reading. I loved the reading and teaching them to read and, and giving them that gift. And uh, the same with the math. Uh, you know, the kids, I have kids that just chew up the math because now they see it's all patterns, yeah. you know, pretty much. And, um, like I said, it, you know, the testing, it got to a point where, you, you know, you got people telling you, Oh, I can't stand. I, I want to go down to the, where you're at, you know? And the other thing that I think that was a mistake was a lot of times the principals moved better teachers up to the t- testing grades. And it's like, listen, you want kids to do well on a test in third grade. Third, yeah, you yeah. better have great kindergarten and first and second grade right. teachers, you know, because right. it's too late. By third grade, it's getting t- kind of late to turn kids around. How come? Why is that? Is it just because of the structure cognitively or is it no, behavioral? I, no, or what is I, it? I, I don't think it's no. I think it's a home situation. Really? I do. I, you know, back in the 80s, um, the school I was at uh, got a lot of kids bust in from a housing complex. And they were just, they were just wanted the same things that anybody else wanted. Their experiences were different. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have kids that lived two miles from the ocean and never been there. Wow. You know, that were, you know, and that was a home situation, you know. No, I remember going and, up and playing Boca Jets and we'd have kids that lived over in Pearl City and right. we'd invite them over to our house and, and, you know, and we'd do things at the house or have stuff and they'd never experienced any of this stuff. Car- and, Carver Estates, I'd go out yeah. there and visit and, you know, the parents would be, uh, you know, the mom or whoever there would be scared in a way because their, their schooling was horrible. Mm-hmm. They had bad experiences, so they were afraid to get involved in school and it was hard for them to come to a school meeting or anything. So I would go out and meet them and talk about their kids and stuff. And once the, you showed them that their kid was uh, worthy yeah. and they would lighten up, you know, they'd smile and you'd see it and, you know, and you'd, you'd know, wow, they, 
They want the same things. Well, rapport is such a massive component to the human interaction, right? And and especially if you if you are coming from that place of education and you're dealing with somebody that's education might not be relevant, then then it's a completely different uh, process to find that 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 place where you can develop trust, right? I, I'll never forget the first time. You know, I'm sitting down with a bunch of Afghan warlords and none of them can read, none of them can write, none of, you know, none, all they know is how to be warlords. And I'm like, how the hell are we going to communicate with these people? And, and you know, some smart people had been around a little bit, said, hey, just sit down, have some tea with them, chai, and you sit and you talk for about an hour about their family and how many sons they have and, you know, where they farm. And, you know, right. and at that point, it's like, okay, this person isn't all bad they're here because they they want something, but they're going to respect me in a way that they right, understand. and they can tell. <laughs> yeah, they can tell yes. you're listening. Yes, they can tell yeah. you're listening. And yeah, that that, that that human connection, you know. Yep. And have and, you always gone out to people's yep. homes? Yep. Really? Who yep. taught you how to do that? I, I don't know. I just thought that was the right thing to do. I wanted to see the kids in their environment, you know. So I, you know, I would, you know, when I was teaching New York, I did it. And New York, the, you know, where I taught in New York was sim- it was Greece, a suburb of Rochester, and it was similar to Boca. You know, Okeechobee, it was definitely I needed to because the kids I had, you know, they were segregated. I mean, there was no middle class per se, really. And the black kids were all in one little section of town. And, you know, and they were, you know, great kids. I mean, I had one little boy that I wanted to really adopt, you know, before I got married and everything. Mm-hmm. And I still think about him and wonder how he's doing. He, yeah. he was incredible. You Let know? me ask you this, in, in all, and I don't mean to shift it and, and get a no, little crazy, but it just popped in my head, you know, everybody always says that, you know, children are not born racist, that racism only permeates because it's taught, right? They see it, they witness it. Now, you've been around 48 years of children. Is that a true statement? No doubt. Uh, now, here's how I know. I have two kids. I have a daughter who was born first and then my son. We, I would take them out to Carver with me. One year we went out there and we were the Easter bunnies. We were dropping off stuff at the kids' houses and stuff. My daughter never, never thought those kids were black. She never ever, until somebody else brought that to her attention. Wow. She never saw a difference in those kids. Wow. She never said, oh, I'm a different skin color than those kids. It never dawned on her, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that to me that was powerful. and. You know, I'm so proud of my kids because they've got black friends and Spanish friends and white friends, and they've got black kids and Spanish kids and white kids that they don't like, mm-hmm. you know, but they judge people by their character, their character and the way Content they act. And, character. you know, and yeah, that needs to happen. It's just, you know, we're all human beings. Well, I, I think the sure. fact that your ancestors were were raised closer to the equator. Yeah, you know? right. I yeah, mean, that's exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It just it, it uh, it's. You know, it, it's, I think the place that we reinforce the values of what, you know, America is intended to be, right? This great experiment called right. America really takes place in our grade schools. I mean, that's where, if, I mean, you think about it now, and I, and I shared that statistic with you uh, about LA County school systems and online schools at the right. end of last year, they lost track of 20, right. 22% of all their kids. Right. I mean, in a, in a school district, I mean, Miami 
date is what it's four hundred and fifty thousand or something like that, and that's it's double that size or something like that. So we're and a million it's all kids. economics. And and they, they just disappear. Imagine those little kids in grade school where they're teaching the value systems that they're not getting in the home. They're right. teaching how to share. They're right. teaching the framework of reading, the possibility of arithmetic, all these fundamental skill sets that if aren't there, the the outcomes are dramatic. I mean, all you got to do right. is go to any country that has a illiteracy rate above what they said, like the, the bright line is like 60%. If, if anything more than 60%, they're destined to warring, being tribalism and warring and all right. that stuff. And, and the corruption is off the charts. And, you know, I've been to the two most corrupt countries in the world. I, I, in Afghanistan, number one, illiteracy rates, 90 some percent or something. And Haiti. And that's the one that blew me, blew my mind. Here's a place right, 90 right miles the, off the coast. And right. I go to Haiti and, you know, what some 80s, some odd percent of the country is illiterate and and you you go my god how powerful that whole structure is and i and and what i'm hearing is that's you got that and not it teaches us it teaches us equality it teaches us character it you know all that age and when you deal with them their brains work just as well I the kids I had from Carver Estates and stuff, their brains worked just as well as any there is of the no kids. Difference. Right, yeah. and it, and they wanted the same things, but like I said, their experiences were different. You know, mm-hmm. you got a kid that hears a gunshot at night versus a kid that's going to the zoo or been to the circus, and you read a book about the zoo or the circus. Obviously, who's going to bring more to the table? Right, the frame of reference. You know, right? so you know, I try to give those kids experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, well, let me ask you this: uh, How? In your opinion, obviously, we, we touched on testing. Um, how, how have schools changed in terms of size, uh, you know, um, size of classrooms, uh, uh, the quality of teaching, um, pay? I mean, pay is a big one, too, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not a, you're not getting rich as a teacher. No, no. And, you know, I knew that going in, so... That never was a big deal, except, you know, when I did get married and, you know, started having kids, you know, my wife and I both had to work and she was always the breadwinner. And then she, she worked nights. So I didn't have to give up my job. And, you know, it, you know, physically, because she had two babies within 14 months and working nights, it was crazy because, you know, she'd bring the kids by school at 2.30 and um, I had a principal that was flexible and let me have the kids for that half hour before my time was up. And then I'd take them home and Joanne would work until two in the morning and, you know, emergency room, come home and try and unwind and then get up at seven with the kids. It was crazy. Wow. But we did that because, you know, financially, we, that's what we had to do. And, um, you know, you knew that going into it kind of. So that wasn't a factor. But There was never a moment for you, Jim, that you were like, Man, I, I could go and work for one of these educational companies. I could be a consultant. Nope, I could nope, do that. Never. I could make. I, I knew, I knew that I was doing what I needed to do, what I wanted to do. And you know, Joanne will tell you the same thing that you know I've spent forty-eight years doing exactly what I wanted to do. And how lucky is that? How many people can say they had a job that they loved doing and they knew that was what they were made Not to many. do? You know. And and on top of that. How many can say for 48 years I made a, a profound impact on a child's life? Well, I, I hoped, you know, I hoped I did. Um, well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How often... You try not to think about that stuff, kind of. Well, yeah. you yeah. have to now. I mean, now's yeah. the time for reflection, right? I mean, you right. put the time in, you did the work. It's critical that you take those lessons learned. And, and I, I would imagine that the greatest 
component of all of that. Now, yeah, you, you got to follow a dream and live that dream out. Right. But really, it's it's doing what you did for children. Have there been any stories that really stand out to you where, you know, you 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 knew that child was right on the precipice and if you just really wanted to get but you weren't sure and then down the road they came back and they say you know mr wade you did this yeah i, I got one for you that's a little different but because i read the letter last night i was going through some of my stuff and i got a letter from um, rebecca paul who was a carver estates kid and back then i would bring the kids over to my house at times um, we had like a sleepover party one night and i had like seven or eight of the kids and, At you know, a teacher's house. Yeah. And my neighbor didn't like that. My neighbor said I'm something sure. to me, and I said, listen, first of all, I don't care what you think. And second of all, you got two daughters. I've got a daughter and a son. If somebody doesn't pay attention to these other kids, then they're, they're our, kids, our kids are going to be paying for them. Exactly. They need a coach or a, a doctor or somebody. Someone to someone take, in the to world take to, an answer. To pay, and because they're just like our kids. They're no yeah. different. Yeah. They want the same things. So anyway, she wrote me a letter later on, and she was quiet, and she wasn't – like one of the boys that I knew really well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew her and everything. She was one of my students. Right. But I never would have thought she would become a teacher and stuff. And she wrote me a letter saying, because of myself and Mrs. Rustin, I had a partner that was great with me. And, uh, you know, she said, you know, like things like bringing us to your house and us seeing your kids and being, having that feeling of, you know, yeah. home or whatever was huge in my life. And you showed me things that I never would have seen. Wow. You know, so... I read that last night, and I'd forgotten that letter, you know, and I was like, wow, yeah, you know. You changed that person's life. Yeah, here's, here's, here's somebody that was quiet, and I didn't know how much influence. Like some of the kids you know, you yeah. see, you know, you got boys with horrible reputations that are nightmares, and all of a sudden they're the stars for you, you know, and they're doing well academically and because you're giving them what they need, mm -hmm. you know, and showing, you know, like I told parents, I tell parents every year at the beginning of the year, listen, discipline is a form of love. You know? Amen, it is. And, you and you know, you've got to let the kids know that, hey, this is acceptable and this isn't. And kids want to know the boundaries, mm -hmm. you know. So I was always good with setting them up for here's what we are going to do. We're a team. We're working together. And if you do what I want you to do, then I'm going to share the power. Otherwise, I got all the power. I don't want all the power. And that was what really was fascinating to me, you know, as a person that thrived in that competitive arena, you always structured the framework it seemed of learning in that competition realm, which was for me invigorating because I made me want to work harder so I could be part of the winning team or the team as, as a collective. And did you ever change that? Did you ever go no. away from that? No. Did you get I criticized got... for that later on by saying, Hey, you're spitting them against each other. You're making it unfair for other kids. Uh, yeah, I, I did have, um, you know, I did have one dad that was a uh, big time writer that, believed in that kind of stuff but I said this is what I do and you know the whole thing is we're you know it's a team thing but you know don't you work for you get paid and you're what you're doing you're you're working for incentives right. I'm just trying to get the kids to work for incentives and also you know have it fun too the other thing back to the what we were talking about another thing that's been really big for me or um fulfilling is parenting the yeah. parents getting the parents to realize, wow, you've got a chance with your kid now to, to do the right thing and be happier with what you're doing. So I would give them ideas of different things they could do with certain books and things like that. And, you know, that was um, powerful. 
we're have have parents do you think there's any change in parents that with that earlier on they were a lot more accessible you could you could without uh, uh, disrespecting them or without uh, making them feel uh, offended could you offer those type types of situations more readily back then or in modern time? yeah earlier earlier in my career I don't think I had the expertise to do that mm -hmm. um, but the parents were they seemed more involved way back and you know, as time has gone on, it seems like you get a situation where you get a certain percentage. And, and of course, Boca was great because most of the parents are terrific. Mm -hmm. But you also got, you know, you got in a situation where some of these parents were too busy with their own lives. And they kind of felt like my kids at an age now where schools should take the responsibility of teaching them. And it's like, well, yeah, that, but it's got to be a team. And that's I've always said. They've got to have that triangle. Mm -hmm. It's got to be you, myself, and the child. And the child's got to know that it's that way and I'm gonna and I would tell the kids look I'm gonna tell your parents what's going on the truth so if you want me to tell them you're doing good then you just got to do good right. if you want me to tell them that you're fooling around then fool around and that's what I'm gonna tell them hmm. you know and I tried to I, I think the big thing too is and it's the schools are responsible for this too there has to be that that communication between the school and the parents the teachers and the parents and can you it know, ever it, get to it's, a place it's where gotta it's be too more much? Than, um, I mean, you hear all those nightmares. I don't think so. As long as it's uh, it's personal, you know, as long as it's a relationship kind yeah. of thing and not, you know, not pointing fingers or that kind of thing. You, you know, finding out, hey, is this working? If the child's having problems, there's probably some kind of connection to home. Usually. Is that what yeah, you found? I, I, I would say so. Okay. And if not, then what is, what, is the, what is the problem? And again, sometimes it's a school. Sometimes it's the teacher. It doesn't fit the child's personality or... You know, the, we haven't touched on this, but, you know, there's there needs to be a better job of getting rid of people that shouldn't be teaching. How do you do that with such a demand for teachers right now? I mean, it seems like every school is understaffed. It seems like every school can't keep teachers. I mean, you know, it, it seems like it's it's hard to even find anybody that wants to get into this profession because it is so thankless. It is. You don't make right. any money. How do you find it? How do you keep them? And yeah, I don't know if I have the answer to that. But, <laughs> you know, I you know, when, once I said and you started bringing up your points, I was like, yeah, you know, we need to do a better job getting people to realize that they should want to be teachers. But like you said, it starts out with economics again, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, OK, you got to make it worthwhile to be a teacher. But if you really are, you know, I, I don't know, maybe you're just born to be one. I, I, there was no incentive they could have given me that was any bigger than the incentive I had inside me to do it. Right. You know, you know, I knew, you know, I knew I wasn't going to get rich doing it, but I didn't care, you know, because I was in a situation where my wife was kind of taking care of me, you know. Yeah, right. She gave you the opportunity. Thank God. Well, let me ask but, you this. You know, here's another thing that happens, and this is one of my pet peeves. I also think in education that some of the worst teachers move up. Why okay. so? Why do that? I, because they want to get out of the classroom. They know they're not successful, and this is my opinion. I think they feel like they're not successful, or they want a different, they want more money, or they want a different situation where they can sit in an office and direct things because the people that I've had that weren't good principals weren't good teachers. And I've never had a principal that was a good teacher that wasn't a good principal. Wow. You know? Let me, let me ask you this. What makes a good teacher? Uh, somebody that's open-minded, I think, somebody that wants to do the right thing, somebody that can look at kids and forgive them, 
you know, forgive their faults and realize, that's why I like the little ones. I realized that any problem they had really wasn't them. It was where they were coming from, mm-hmm. you know, how they were being raised or, you know, what they've experienced. And, um, you know, and I also think wanting to get better. A lot of the guys that liked me and thought I was hot stuff, they said, you know, you're the one person I know that keeps reading to get better. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you, you read, you know, you're reading all this stuff and you're, you haven't stopped trying to get better. You know, you've been teaching 40 years, 45 years, you're still reading stuff. I saw you reading a book the other day. Right. And, you know, so I don't know how you can that or whatever, but I, you know, I always wanted to get better. I didn't want to, you know, and I, you know, I get credit for a lot of things, but most of my ideas I acquired and just made them fit my personality. Right. You know, I didn't really invent too many things. Well, I mean, I I think so much has already been done. It's just finding, like you said, finding, finding the right tactics that, that, that makes sense for you, that, you know, you can, uh, present well to, to the child, to the variety of children that you find. And, and you, and you got, obviously you got to like kids. You got to like, you, you got to like what you're doing. You got to, and you got to realize that, wow, what an opportunity you have to make the world a better place. And isn't that really the goal of everybody? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, my son's playing professional poker out in Vegas, and he knows my goal for him is to make the world a better place. Right. You know, my daughter's working for a financial company and got her own kids, and she knows my goal is that she makes the place, you know, the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And my wife lives it every day. Yes, yeah, she does. You know, so I've got that modeling for me, you know. So <laughs> step up, Dad. Uh, you yeah, know? Roger up. <laughs> Roger, all right. Let's, um, let's just kind of... Uh, go through this last and then, and then we'll wrap it up. But you know, what in your mind, what should education look like in the future? And you know, from whether it's more charter schools, better voucher systems, um, you know, how you feel about politics in schools and what they're teaching and then teachers unions as well too. Okay. Um, take the first one. What, what should public school systems look like in the future? I think there should be more of, setting them up so that kids can work on finding their passion. If that means working with their hands back in the day, you know, when you had shop, shop classes class. and home ec, I think there should be more of that. Do you know so, the guy, do you know the guy, Mike Rowe, the dirty jobs guy? He was on discovery. Dirty, okay, yeah. I, real famous guy. He, he has this massive initiative to drive high school kids towards trade jobs. There's 1.7 million available trades jobs right now in America. And he's got this great pact out there. We, I, inter- I got a chance to interview him on the, one of the last podcasts I was doing. And one of the things he said was, was David, you know, this whole concept about uh, following your passion doesn't always work out because we have all these, we have what, uh, you know, $2 trillion in, in college debt for all these humanities guys who have, you know, East African art history majors that are living in their parents' basements because they can't get a job with their major. And one of the comments that he made, and I want to put this to you, is he said, you know, um, you, you don't have to follow your passion, but you got to be passionate about what you do. And there's a difference between okay. that. Is, is, is that what you're saying? Or should we let the let kids just kind of wide open and, and, and recognize, hey, you, there might not be a job for your passion. Okay, so if, if you are, you know, trying to make the school system a situation where the kids are going to be better in life, then you have to let them follow their passion, but you have to explain to them and show them that if you like working with your hands, then there's all these trades that you could do. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're an artist, there's all kinds of things that you can do that are in the trades that would, 
you know, you also have to realize that you're going to be living life. Right. And when you live life, you got bills to pay and those kind of things. Like there's no financial stuff in school, right? You don't learn how to write a check and those mm-hmm. kind of things. I mean, I think we're missing a lot of the basic things in life. Like back in the day when I went to school, you know, we were diagramming sentences. I mean, who did that really help? How many people needed that? You know, there's questions on Jeopardy that I get wrong because I wasn't good diagramming. But it's only once in a while on an episode, you know. So, I mean, like I said, there was a lot of things that happened in schools that you, they only happened like taking a spelling test that only happened in school. Yeah. You know, yeah, you have to be good at spelling. Can't you make the argument though? It's, 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 uh, having to commit something to memory. It's the pressure of time because your job, you're always under the clock. You have to commit things to memory. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. All those things. Kids have to know their math facts. Right. You know, there are things that I think, yeah, you have to, have the mental discipline to be able to memorize certain things and that should be part of the educational system you know um the thing that you know doesn't worry me but the fact that the kids the jobs the kids children are going to have in the future haven't even been invented yet yeah that was my problem solving you we've got to really have a bigger focus on kids learning to work in teams yeah and be able to problem solve you know and i think those kinds of things the school's got to be set up that way and you got to make it equal. You got to make sure that the kids that are coming from poor environments still have good schooling. Yeah. And I, I don't know how you do that. That's you know? well, that's the big challenge right now. You look at a place like, and I shared, you know, in Baltimore, they don't have a single kid, at least according to one of the latest political ads coming out of there, uh, that Kim Kalik uh, or whatever her name is, is the new hot commodity in terms of um, fighting against what's going on in Baltimore. But she, she gave a, did an ad recently said, uh, not one child in the Baltimore County school system is is at the appropriate math level. That's, yeah, that's you, substantial. Yeah. It's like, how, 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 how can that be possible? How and, is in 2021, and, right. with as much technology, as much funding, as much whatever, how can this be happening? Right, because right every one of those kids, I don't know about Baltimore, but like in my classroom, every one of the kids was better than I was on the computer. Oh my but, God, that's but, another part of but, this. But okay, so is that because they're only playing games? Why isn't there a way? I mean, isn't math a big a part of? So my my three youngest daughters are playing this game on their iPads in school. It's called Prodigy, and it's a math okay. thing. And right. so what they do the other day, they came home, and my my the oldest of the youngest comes and says, "Dad, can I get?" prodigy on my ipad and i'm like well what is it it's like it's a game i was like nope and they're like it's a math game that you have to answer math i'm like yep there you go yeah and And then the next two yeah and it's also competitive right right, right. because you can play against other kids exactly i I don't i understand a little bit but i all the kids in my room were doing it and the boys it was great for the boys because they were going against each other and i saw that part of it right how do you not support that? You know, as a as a self admitted uh, technological imbecile, uh, um, uh, no, no, we'll call you white belt. As <laughs> yeah. a te- not, right? yeah, as not a, even a white as belt. A, not a, yeah. a rope, a, a rope. <laughs> like the Beverly the Hillbillies. <laughs> you got a rope around your key, right? <laughs> as a technological novice, you know, are are you seeing that's played a major role in in how kids are learning in your classroom, or not really? Um. No, not until the pandemic. Okay. You know, I, th- I think it was more um, entertainment. I think it was more baby, glorified babysitting and more, you know, Minecraft and those kind of things the kids mm-hmm. were doing. But as far as education and, uh, you know, reading and math and writing, I didn't see that 
I thought it was uh, it could be beneficial, but the kids weren't using it that way. Okay. Now maybe the older kids were, you know. Um, well, let me ask you this: now with the pandemic that's hit, you know, one of the big concerns, and I shared this with you too, is like you look at LA County who lost track of all those kids, and that's happening. I mean. Uh, Miami-Dade is having profound problems the first two weeks. They right. had just endless glitches, big articles written about it. You know, uh, is 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 having a child, I mean, obviously the greatest thing is to have your children in school so they can get that focus, right. time, and attention. It, 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 let's say, you know, the, the pandemic is, is, you know, wanes and goes away, but it's still kind of out there. Should 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 we allow this kind of half, you know, hybrid training to continue or, you know, is it possible to kids for kids for what your specialty is in grade school? Is it possible for kids to be able to uh, learn the skill sets they need uh, in this environment of teaching? Only only if the parents are involved. Last year was my first taste of it, you know, from March on. And the parents that were um, involved, and I, you know, I, I called a lot and talked, and we, the parents you that weren't involved, went to the houses. I, I did, too, I yeah. did go to the houses, deliver books, <laughs> you know, with my mask on and everything, and you know, I kept track of what the kids were doing. But the kids that had parents that were involved were were fine, you know, it wasn't as good, obviously. Right. It didn't feel as good to me, and I know it didn't feel as good to them. Um, but a couple of kids that were in different situations, they weren't successful. Right. And, you know, like one little example was I, you know, had to get on the phone and, you know, basically talk to mom off the ledge and let her leave the room and talk to the, my student and, you know, say, look, I will meet with you tomorrow in a Zoom if you do what you're supposed to do. Again, those carrots and those right. incentives, right. you know, and that worked, you know, a couple of times. But, you know... You, you can't do that for the whole school year no. and stuff, you know? What, what do you think would be the ramifications with that? What, do we lose a generation of kids? Is, is, I mean, what are, what are the, what is the potential major? Uh, 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 not only, uh, yeah, I think you're going to lose them because I think it's going to just destroy the relationship between the parents and the kids. You know, the parents, you know, are frustrated and they don't know how to help and, you know, you're setting. It's hard enough when parents aren't sure what they're doing, and at least they've got the school right. to help them. Right. And if the school's good, then you got a situation that's going to be okay. And the kids got their peer group and stuff. Uh, you don't have that. You know, not like I've told people. You know, over my career, it was easier to be a teacher than it was a parent, because I had a peer group. You know, when you're home, you don't have that peer group. Yeah. When you're teaching, you got that peer group, and you know. The kids follow. They like, oh, these other guys are getting this. I want that. Well, then you got to do what they're doing. You know. Were you were you like <laughs> were you like the 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 old wizard of of Addison Miser? Did they all come? All new teachers come to you and sit with you and say, hey, Jim, how do I do this or what do I do? You know, um, how many how many li- teachers listen, to be have honest, you I burned. I earlier in my career, I burned a bunch of bridges. You oh, know. You did. Oh yeah, because I thought men and women. Uh, thought the same and did the same. And I had a, a fantastic principal. I have, I've had three women in my life that just were incredible. My mm-hmm. mom, my wife, and this Mrs. Finnegan. You know? Mrs. Finnegan. Yep, Helga Finnegan. And she, she, she got me reading Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. 
And I'm like, no way, you know, and I got right, my right. wife says, yes, way. You know, I'm thinking that wasn't 20 points when I did that. <laughs> no, it's one. It's one. And I, I realized that men and women thought different. I didn't think that, you know. Right. So, like I said, I burned a bunch of bridges earlier in my career. I think in the fact that, you know, I was popular was hard for some people. You know, it's a guy. He's got a deep voice. That's why the kids listen to him. And it was like, no, you think got to think deeper. And then there were, um, you know, some women that I worked with, and they go, wow, what you're doing is working, and, and they carried it over. And like I said, it has to fit your personality. Right. Everything I'm doing could work for somebody else if they fit it into their personality. It wasn't anything, you know, like, for example, I would play a lot of games, and it would be like, if you want to turn, you got to give me back the information we just went over, or you got to be able to do what we just did. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, now the kids are wanting to process, you know, they're processing what you're saying because they want to turn at it. Right. So, so you don't have to be like, you don't have to be able to recite Piaget verbatim, right? You don't no, have no, to, I, no. you don't have to it's, be a, it's, a, kind of, it's, it's being a human being. Right. And what, what do we want? What don't I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm going to stay, say this, but I don't know, have the statistics, but I'm pretty sure everybody wants to be a good human being. The majority of people in the world want to be good human majority, beings. Yeah. So why don't we set up the school system so that we're creating good human beings that are you know, thoughtful and caring and want to do the right thing without being in a situation where they're suffering. If they're suffering, somehow we can figure out a way to ease that suffering, Amen. you know. Um, you know, there are things, obviously things in life aren't always going to go well and you need to learn how to handle it. And you know this, I'm sure you, you've been big with this, you know, the mental health of the country. Yeah, it's it's. You know, my wife talks about it all the time, and it's like, okay, why do you think we have all this homeless? You think they're choosing to be homeless? Overwhelming majority aren't. So there's there's yeah. a certain. I mean, I think you know, mental health is all is the great unknown for our country right now. It's right. the greatest threat that we face. It's bigger than the pandemic. It's bigger than COVID. It's bigger than anything we're going to face. The mental health issues that we're facing. I mean, just in our community alone. I mean, we're. I think we're down to. The latest number I heard is we're losing 17 veterans a day from suicide. Right? Wow. We just lost another SEAL committed suicide two weeks ago. Before that, uh, there was somebody a couple months ago, you know, a, a friend of mine committed suicide last uh, spring. You know, and this and that's just that, that's, an art. That's yeah. crushing. I mean, it, that if that doesn't if you know, I was never in the service. Uh, that just if that doesn't you know make you want to just be well, crushed for, for me and knowing that they did they put so much out for the for all of us and then to come back and not have the support to be able to deal with what happened and well for me it all it all uh, uh, the grand majority of these coping skills right these skills that we need they happen in grade school true right the the skills that you apply for throughout your life uh, overwhelmingly come from that that three to Ten age, I, I, age yeah, because right? I think that's when you're most impressionable, that's right? Where, and, that's where you're and, taking it in. And if you get a positive influence there, it's huge. And you get a negative one, it's huge. It's huge. You know, and, so we need to make sure that we're given as many positive influences as we can. How do we do that? I mean, how how do how do we take um, you know all the challenges that the educational system is is facing right now, um, and how do we how do we um, how do we lift it up? Maybe we've got to make it more important. Maybe we've got to, you know, make it more of a commitment as 
you know, a society and saying, look, this really is important. So now let's put the resources to making it this way and trying to get the right people to get into education. Well, that's for me, that's everything. I mean, you know, people all the time, they ask, you know, how are the SEAL teams so successful? Well, we, we have one of the most stringent weeding out processes in the world. And then we spend, you know, four straight years training these individuals to do their job and then the expectations uh, from their peer evaluation and peer groups are at the highest possible level you can. And do. they have an unbelievable history. Exactly. And so you that, want to follow promoted, that tradition. Yeah, and you and you you it's an emotional commitment to the ideology of the of the group, and I think that's really fundamental. What what comes down, you know, is that, you know, it, it takes great great teachers like yourself. It takes great leadership in there to to really say, hey, you know, our, the kids are the focus. Let's figure out how to do that. Yeah, I, that, I think that's a big point. The kids are the focus. We don't need a lot of these other things that we're acting like we're focusing on. You know, we need to focus on the kids and making them better human beings and, you know, making them want to be good, yeah. want to be successful. And you've seen that. You've seen that shift how many different times where you have the child that's not sure, they figure it out, and you see them blossom. What is that? Can you just, just before we wrap it up and our final question to you, can you just describe what that's like to watch that happen in a child? Well, like I told you, I, I've never given a, a child something they didn't already have. But when you get, a, you know, you get one of these kids that's had issues in other grade levels and couldn't get along or, and you get them feeling like they're a part of a team and that you, you know, it takes a little while, but then they start realizing, wow, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'm and oh, I got these talents. I got these things that I'm good at. And man, you just see their whole demeanor change, and their even their look. You know, they just then their body language, and just they feel so good, and you feel so good, and it just grows. And you've got this commitment. You've got this. They're like your buddies. You've got this relationship where you're, you know, you know you're good for them, and they know you. you they're good for you. It's mutual. And I, I, I guess that's the human being, the human element of it. It you is know, the but, um, you know, I feel like all the, the 48 years, I feel like I've got all those inside me, you know, and they just sit somewhere and then all of a sudden like running into you again and like, wow, it's like, you know, so it's, it's just as powerful for me as it is for you, you well, know, and I know you, you probably can't see that like, but that's, no, that's I, why, I, I, that's why I know that what I got to do was powerful and you know, I, I also appreciate this because I realize, and my son's been telling me this, Dad, you've got this information. You know, you need to be able to share it. You know, you need to well, you know, what, just take what, it with you. You know, what, what's the what's but I, I, I what's know. the Lord teach us, man? Is that you know, I I can I can go grab a fish from somebody, but if I can Te- teach, teach someone to fish, fish, they can eat forever. Right. And I think that's what our job is as right. human beings for right. each other is to pass that knowledge down. But again, too, I. I I don't know. I, I feel like I need to say this, but I kind of feel simple. I kind of feel like what I did wasn't that big a deal. It was, you know, something that was me. That's, yeah. you know, it wasn't like, oh, wow, I had to do a whole bunch. No, I just got to be myself. And, you know, I got to be that clown I always wanted to be. And, you know, I, you got the girl, you got the job. Yeah, I got, the, got girl. the Yeah, it's like, come on, are you kidding me? That's why, my, you know, I, I, I told you earlier that I have a black son and a white son, right? right. And the, Brian lived with us for 10 years. And one night at dinner, they were sitting there looking at me, and Joanne was doing everything. And they, they just said, Dad, how did you do it, you know? 
you're the grandmaster, you know? So <laughs> they started calling me grandmaster because they said, you don't do anything around here. Mom does everything. And Brian and Tristan going, we got to find a girl like that. I said, I don't know if there's many like that. She's, yeah. she's an angel, you know? Yeah. So they're few yeah, and far yeah, between. Yeah. For so sure. I said, that's a good goal, boys. <laughs> yeah. Right. Good, on you. good luck. Yeah. If I can't teach you how to do it, but go for yeah. it. All right. Last question. Uh, you have, uh, transformed 48 years of lives uh you now hung it up um where does uh mr wade go from here okay so actually i haven't hung it up because all you guys are alumni <laughs> so i've already got a couple kids that I've, i'm grandfathering like yeah. you know i got one boy that did really well for me last year yeah and he's you know he's on shaky ground so i'm continue to talk to him and see him and stuff so Good. i can't really see him yet you know I yeah mean, but um so you know and i got a couple teachers that i'm still communicating with that, that i love and that help me and i want to help them it's just right now you know you're not allowed on the school and yeah. stuff like that so i gotta kind of wait the things open up a little bit but you know i'm i'm uh you know i've yeah i've given it up but i haven't you know i'm it's in you it's yeah, who you are yeah well mr wade um, again, seriously, uh, you have been one of the most profound influences in my life. Uh, I, if I can be, uh, just, if I can conjure up just some semblance of, of the power that you had over me and, and the way I reach other people, then I'll be a happy man. And yeah, so, I think you've already done it. Yeah, I mean, I've been really impressed with, you know, your questions and the insight that you've had and the things that you're doing. And, you know, I want I want to um, be a part of that and continue with you. Amen. All Thank right? you. You're welcome.